And with that, I think we can open our Bibles to Revelation 15. I hope that we can get through chapter 15 and 16. Chapter 15 is a pretty short chapter. Uh, I will have to move rapidly. Fortunately, you have the notes. Uh, it's impossible for me to cover everything that's in the notes, but that's why I do the notes uh, for you, and I always try to do notes for the conferences because there's so much in, in any passage or book or text that we study, uh, it's impossible to cover it all uh, just in the time that we're opening the Word, so hopefully you'll read through these. And by the way, uh, by all means, as you read through the notes, if there are things that are not clear or things you don't understand, I want you to always feel free to uh, ask questions while we're together. So we'll begin in Revelation 15. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer before we start. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for calling us together this evening. In our gathering together, we're being obedient to your command that we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And of course, most if not all of us have our local churches that we gather in, but to gather together every Friday evening is just such a very special thing for all of us. Father, our prayer is that you'll open your word to us tonight and you'll guide us as we work our way through these passages, clarify them and remove any obscurity, any confusion or difficulty and help us grasp the central truth, the central principle that you're trying to get across to us. Let these words drive deep into our hearts and as we just mentioned, Speaking about James, let us not be hearers only, but help us to be doers also. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Where are we in the notes? We would be on page 58 in your notes. So you'll notice that, and we just, we just had the, just to review quickly, we had the uh, harvest uh, of the saints there in chapter 14. And then we also had the reaping of wrath uh, constantly through the book of Revelation. God is setting in front of us the hope, the confidence, the security that we have in Christ, the, the hope that we have for our eternal future in contrast to the judgment that is going to fall on those who reject Christ. We're going to see more of that as we launch into the 15th chapter because John just drives this home almost in every passage. You see rejoicing in heaven. Uh, you see woe and weeping on the earth. And there are people who, when they read passages like this, uh, they often ask what kind of a God could bring this kind of judgment. We're going to deal with that question tonight. Uh, but we also need to realize that uh, when, we, uh, when we open the Word and we open our hearts and our souls to God the Holy Spirit, our <coughs> desire is to grasp, we're reading about the future. And some would ask, what good is it for us? What relevance does it have to us or meaning does it have to us to know what God's going to do in the future? 
Well, if you stop and think about it, when you read the Old Testament, we're talking about things that are past and over and done. So what benefit do we get from those things? Well, not only do we see a lot of prophecy because two-thirds of the Bible is built on prophecy. Prophecy is the one thing that the atheist can't refute about the Scripture, though they try. Uh, but it's also because it shows us how God has dealt with His people and how He has manifested His faithfulness in times of apostasy, in times of rebellion, in times of persecution, in times of peace, in times of war, we see over and over and over that God is faithful. And that's something that we're really going to emphasize tonight. When we look to the future in the book of Revelation, we're seeing the same thing. Uh, it's the same God with the same essence, the same character, the same nature, continuing to deal with human rebellion and unbelief and perversion and all the other things that go along with it. He remains the same. You know, our lives are a matter of constant change. Days change, weather changes, friends and family change, people change, circumstances change, God never changes. And that is really the basis of our security and our hope uh, as we look toward the future. So we're just going to start here with the seven bowl judgments. You remember uh, that there are three sets of seven judgments as we go through the book of Revelation, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and now we've come to the seven bowls, which I believe are the judgments that fall on the earth immediately before Christ returns to this earth. And the thing I find fascinating as I go through this is that I can see elements of the world that's being portrayed to us here in the world that we are now living in. We are seeing our world moving in this direction. We are seeing that what John wrote about 2,000 years ago was not uh, a lot of crazy fantasies or uh, imaginations. God was giving us a preview. Now, he doesn't tell us everything because we don't need to know everything. He tells us what we need to know. So come with me as we kind of sprint through these two chapters. The seven bowl judgments. Notice, and I'll just begin here with about the first uh, four verses. Then I saw, John writing, another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass, something like a sea of glass, mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested." Let's hit a few highlights in these first four verses. Now, I want you to notice that John says he saw another sign. This is actually the third sign that he has seen up to this point. 
uh, right there in the middle of your page on page 58. Uh, we have the sign of the woman, which represents Israel in Revelation 12, 1 through 5. We have the sign of the dragon, which is a picture of Satan in Revelation 12, 3 and 4. And then we have the sign of the plagues. Uh, this is where we are now in this chapter. One of the things that John, I believe, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to get, knowing as he's writing 2,000 years ago, and they were going through their times of trial and suffering and persecution, knowing that people in the tribulation would be going through those, and knowing that the church all the way through history would be experiencing this in some place. You know, we're very fortunate in that we have lived in a time that we have not suffered persecution for our faith. But it's beginning. If you look around at our world today, if you look at our current administration, persecution is being planned against the church. We notice, for example, that it is more and more difficult to do mission work. Our government and other governments are opposed to it and resist it. It's becoming more and more difficult for us to funnel finances to ministries overseas because now they want to have a meticulous uh, scrutiny of every single penny that we spend. Uh, we are now in a time where our government wants to know if you make a purchase or if you send a, uh, a, an amount of support over $600, you know, it used to be they never even looked at anything under $20,000. But I don't know if you're aware of this, but if you make a purchase over $600, they are immediately on that scrutinizing because they want to tell you how you should spend your money. And they want to make sure that they get their cut. And that's really what it boils down to. So persecution uh, will come. Uh, you know, it has been a matter of the life of believers through history. But as he sees this sign, he sees the seven angels having the seven last plagues. These are what are called the bowl, uh, or some refer to it as the vial, or the cup judgments. Oh, and what I wanted to mention when I was talking about all the persecution. John wants us to understand Jesus Christ controls history. His hand is on the tiller. History is not going nowhere. We are not in a runaway train. Uh, we are in a story that is being told from beginning to end of God's grace and God's offer of salvation and man's not only rejection, but hatred and hostility to that message. So because of that, judgment must come. The wrath of God is going to be completed now as we look at the tribulation martyrs uh, in verses 2 through 4, uh, we have this huge company. And you notice their victory. They had victory over the beast, and this refers to the political system. They had victory over his image. There's the religious system, and then the mark and the number of his name, economic. The world is moving toward a conglomerate of political, religious, and economic control. That's where the world is going, and that's the world of the tribulation period. And so the saints are singing this song. And 
they have this victory, and we saw this earlier in Revelation 12, 11. You'll remember one of the most uh, famous verses in Revelation. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, that speaks of their salvation, and by the word of their testimony. That refers to the truth that they held to and proclaimed, and then they did not love their lives even unto the death. And so these martyrs are singing and praising God uh, because of their ultimate victory. Uh, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. It's very interesting. They're singing the song of Moses, and you can go back and see the song of Moses in Exodus 15. Actually, there are two. Exodus 15, after they came out of Egypt, and then Deuteronomy 32, at the end of Moses' life. Uh, they are singing the song of the first Passover. Uh, these saints are singing the song of their personal Passover. I want you to notice particularly that they mention, glorious are your works, just and true are your ways. Your works and your ways. If you will, uh, turn with me to a couple of passages. Uh, let's look at Psalm 90. Just real quickly, because these two words are very important. And you'll notice, as you get to Psalm 90, if you have the superscription, which unfortunately some Bibles leave out, and I can't understand that because in the Hebrew, the superscription is verse 1. So they've actually left out a verse of Scripture. This is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And so Moses is saying, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting, you are God. And he talks about how God judges and how even God's people had been consumed by his angers, uh, by his anger and by his wrath for their disobedience. Um, if you come on down toward the end, though, he, he's talking about God's works, and then he comes down in verse 16, let your work appear to your servants. Let the beauty of our Lord, in verse 17, our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The ways of God are revealed in the works of God. Turn with me to Psalm 103. And, and Psalm, Psalm 103 will help explain why Moses stresses this. In Psalm 103, verse 7, I want you to notice, He made known His ways to Moses and His works to the children of Israel. You see the connection there, his ways and his works. You know, when you see someone acting, someone that you don't know, you may not know their motive, you may not know what's uh, going through their mind, why they're doing what they're doing, but when you see someone you know well acting, you know that their acts are consistent with what they're thinking, with their motivation, with their goals and objectives, with their character, and so forth. 
In other words, you understand not just the works that they're doing, you understand their ways. God revealed his ways to Moses, but his works to the children of Israel. What's the difference? What is the difference? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3 and we'll see. Hebrews chapter 3, of course, begins the warning in the book to these Jewish believers who are in danger of falling back into Judaism and forsaking the new covenant. That's the essential thrust of the book of Hebrews. He starts out in verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested and tried me. They saw my works for 40 years. Remember, He revealed His ways to Moses, but His works to the children of Israel. Therefore, I was angry with that generation, say they'd always go astray in their hearts. And they have not known, what? My ways. Do you see the difference here? Moses knew God. Israel knew about God. That's a big danger that faces each and every one of us. We may know a lot about Him, but the question is, do we know Him? Do we not just see His works? Because you see, when all you see are His works, as we're going to find in Revelation 15 and 16, you throw your hands up and you say, how could a God of love do this? And how many times have you heard that question? How could a loving God do what He did in the Old Testament when they judged the Canaanites? Well, in the first place, most people are ignorant of just how horrible the Canaanite culture was. If I were to stand here and just rattle off off the top of my head facts that I know from years of study on the Canaanite culture, you would be absolutely stunned. You would be shocked. It would be sickening to you to hear how depraved and how degenerate the Canaanite culture was. Not only that, most people forget that God gave the Canaanite culture four centuries to repent. He was long-suffering. He said to Abraham, I'm going to take your people and I'm going to take them down and they are going to be slaves in another country because the cup of iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Once again, we have the picture of the cup. God allows us to fill the cup and we fill the cup either with our faithfulness or our rebellion. As Paul talks in 2 Timothy 2, verse 20 and 21, a vessel of honor or a vessel of dishonor. He lets us choose what we're going to be. But what we don't realize is if we follow that path of rebellion, that cup is filling up with a demand for judgment. Because God is not only a loving God, He is also a righteous and a just God, and righteousness and justice combined make up His holiness, and what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God always supplies. And sometimes that's judgment. So he gave them four centuries. Then he delivers the children of Israel out of Egypt in the greatest deliverance in history, I suppose. 
with signs and wonders and miracles and amazing things. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Our pastor talked about this recently. That God seems to work miracles a lot in certain times of history. And then there are other times when it's like nothing's happening. But it's very interesting to me that the times when God worked the most miracles, and it makes me wonder what may be coming for you and I, the time that he works the most miracles are in the sight of his own people right before he judges them. Time of Moses, was it a time of faithfulness? No, it was a time of mass rebellion among the children of Israel. The time of Elijah, Miracles, seven magnificent miracles in the life of Elijah. What kind of a time was it? What, what were God's people doing? They sold out to Jezebel and Ahab. They were completely compromised and corrupt. And then who follows Elijah but Elisha? And of course, Elisha works twice the miracles of Elijah. And then what happens at the end of Elisha's ministry? God's judgment falls on the children of Israel. And then we come to the fourth greatest time of miracles in history, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one worked the miracles that the Lord did while he was on this earth. And you would think, if people see this, they'll believe. But they actually didn't. The works actually hardened them even more, caused them even more to shut their eyes, to cover their ears, to go off singing la, la, la into the night, and then what happened? Jesus warned them, this generation will not pass until all these things are fulfilled. And we know that in 70 AD, the Romans came down and surrounded Jerusalem. There was a terrible siege and a terrible famine in the city. Women in the city were doing the same thing they did back in the days when Babylon overthrew the children of Israel, and women were baking and eating their own children. That's pretty rough. Josephus, the Jewish historian, was outside the walls of Jerusalem. He saw it all happen. He recorded it all. You can read it. Uh, he's a meticulous historian. And then what happened? Jesus said, not one stone is going to be left standing on another that will not be torn down. And the nation of Israel ceased to exist. They were obliterated from history. They were driven into every nation on the face of the earth. And for nearly 1,900 years, there was no existence of the children of Israel. How could a loving God do that? Well, the interesting thing is, if you look back in history, he always disciplines his own first. He always deals with his own and corrects his own first. It makes me wonder what may be coming in our own time. God is the same God. So the point that I want to make is they're singing here as we come back to Revelation 15 about the works and the ways of God. They understand. They are now in heaven. They have been martyred for their faith. And in heaven... They see the whole picture. They see what is evident and obvious visibly, but now they see what can only be seen on this earth with the eye of faith. The important thing for you and I is to always penetrate 
and pierce that barrier, pierce that veil, if you will, and look at God's works in light of God's ways, and we'll begin to understand history and our own lives so much better. All right, we have the temple open in verses 5 through 8. If you read with me after these things, I looked. And behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. He's talking here about the holy of holies in heaven. It's the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. Remember, the ark was called the ark of the testimony. Is opened. And this is very interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, you remember that when Moses made the tabernacle, it was said that he made it according to the image of that which existed in heaven. So here we're actually seeing that which he built the temple around. The second thing is that the place where God met with the people in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And if you remember, the Ark of the Covenant was made of wood overlaid with gold. It's a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in so many ways. Wood speaks of his humanity. Deity speaks, uh, gold speaks of his deity. You'll remember at the top, the central feature of the Ark was what? It was called the mercy seat. God is always offering mercy. And mercy is the focus of everything he's doing in the human race. And then you have the two angels on each side. I suppose I could draw you a very quick, not being an artist, I do the best I can. It was basically a box made of wood overlaid with gold. Here is the mercy seat. On one side you have an angel kneeling with his wings stretched out. On the other side, an angel kneeling with his wings stretched out. I personally believe that these angels represent the righteousness and the justice of God. They're looking down. They're looking down into the mercy seat. But they're also looking into the ark. And we're told in Hebrews 9, verses 4 and 5, what was in the ark. It's very important. Does anyone remember? Okay, there was a bowl of manna. And Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod. And the ten tablets. I mean the two tablets. And the broken tablets. Tablets that God had written the law on. Would you stop and think about these? What do we see in each of these? The first thing that we see when we consider these, what do we see? How interesting. God's ways, his provision, manna in the wilderness, Aaron to be the high priest and the spiritual leader of the nation, the tables of stone, the Ten Commandments, God's provision to his people. But what do we also see in those four things? We also see the sins of men. When the Jews complained about the lack of food in the wilderness and God gave them manna, what did they do? They complained. We're sick of this manna. We're sick of this. Aaron's rod, what happened? Number 16, Korah led a rebellion against Aaron because he said, you guys are 
throwing your weight around, taking too much on yourselves, assuming a position that you don't rightfully hold. We are priests too. You should let us do some of the leadership. Every church goes through a challenge like this. Always. We want to be in the leadership position. And so you'll remember they took all the rods of all the uh, people that were rebelling with Aaron's rod and he said, tomorrow the rod that buds, that's my man. Aaron's rod budded, there it is. God's authority stands firm. And what happened to all the rebels? You remember, the earth opened up and swallowed them up. And then of course, the table of stone, God says, here are my commandments, only 10. You know, how could you summarize the whole spiritual life and the whole moral structure of the universe in 10 commands. It's absolutely amazing. And most people don't realize that the 613 commands that form a part of the law of Moses, all of them are just an amplification and explanation of the 10 commandments. And how do they begin? I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt. You shall have no other God before me. What do we see as the number one sin of the nation of Israel throughout her whole history? Idolatry. No sooner had they come out of Egypt, no sooner had they crossed through the Red Sea. Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments, and what are they doing? They're making a golden calf. Right? So this is what we're seeing now in heaven. And John says that the temple is open. And out from the temple come seven angels having the seven plagues, the last set of seven plagues. They are clothed in pure bright linen, having their chests girded with golden bands. In the ancient world, if you wore a belt, your rank was determined. We put patches on people's shoulders. Your rank was determined by the width of your belt. You might remember in chapter 1 when John saw the vision of Jesus, he was girded with a golden belt up to his chest. That's ultimate authority. Um, I was actually asked to pray at a karate competition one time, and seated at a table were seven masters from Korea. You know, these guys in their Zen position, all this. And I was asked to pray, and so I prayed, and I said in my prayer that we were honored to be in the presence of those who had high rank. But I said, we must never forget that the highest rank is the Lord Jesus Christ, who wears a belt no one but him can wear. And of course, mm -hmm. they didn't like it, but <laughs> they got it anyway. <laughs> So, verse 7, Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and His power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So, chapter 15 has basically set us up to realize that the counterpart to the love of God and the faithfulness of God is the wrath of God. You can't reject the one without rejecting the other. When you think of the fact that God brought His own Son into this world 
that he lived a life misunderstood, slandered, maligned, mocked, and ultimately beaten half to death and then crucified. And add to that, because we should never just stop with the physical torment he went through, the fact that while he hung on the cross, the sins of every member of the human race penetrated his soul. This is what Isaiah means in Isaiah 53 when it says he poured out his soul in death. It was not just the physical death or the physical suffering. It was the spiritual anguish, which was beyond anything that you and I could ever comprehend. And then to have, because of his sacrifice, the free offer of grace and mercy and forgiveness and deliverance and salvation spit on, mocked, scorned and despised, you can't do that and get away with it. There must be a retribution. And so before we move on at the bottom of your page 59, and I want to do this for the sake of those because these classes actually go up on our website. I just want to cover some points on the faithfulness of God. And you can read them as I go over them. First of all, God is faithful to forgive sins. I mean, how amazing is that? 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that means any sin at any time. When we confess it to Him, whatever the consequences of it may be on this earth or in our life, He forgives immediately. Why? Because that sin was paid for by Christ on the cross. When we fall, when we fail, when we sin, and we come to God and confess it, do you know what we're actually doing? We're reaching back to the cross and we're saying it was dealt with here. And I'm claiming the fact that this sin was covered. God is faithful to forgive sin. Secondly, God is faithful to keep us saved. We are not to live in doubt regarding our eternal destiny. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. That's 2 Timothy 2.13. Third, God is faithful to deliver us through temptations. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you except, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear or endure it. Fourth, God is faithful to keep His promises to us. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. You know, if we could ever just stop and realize not a single promise made to us in the Bible and they claim that there are 7,000. I've never counted them. But the Bible is full of promises. If you only took one, Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. If we really believed it, how much of a difference would it make in our life? When things are going bad, when, when we feel like God is a million miles away, when we pray and we feel like He's not hearing our prayers, if we would believe the promises that are made to us, that He will never leave us, He will never forsake us, how much of a difference would it make in our life? 
Fifth, God is faithful to us in suffering. 1 Peter 4.19 Therefore let those also who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. When we go through tests, trials, and sorrows, if we could just say, God has allowed this for a reason. You know, my dad, I don't know how many of you know the story, when he was seven, eight years old, uh, he was horribly bur burned in a schoolhouse fire. His older brother died as a result of it nine days later. The doctors told his parents that he would never walk again. They recommended amputation of his legs because they were so horribly burned. And my aunt, who lived to be 103, told me as she stood at the foot of his bed crying because he was in such pain, he looked up at her and he said, Don't cry, sister. God allowed this for a reason. And I will find out what that reason is. That's amazing for an eight-year-old. You know, when the Bible says, Out of the mouth of babes, God ordains praise. Uh, things like that prove it to be true. God allowed this for a reason. If we could always say that, what a difference it would make in our attitude and our life. Six, God is faithful in fulfilling His plan for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, He who calls you is faithful, and He also will do it. Do what? He will do what He called us to accomplish if we surrender to Him. No Christian is left out of the plan of God. No believer is without a purpose in their life. God has a plan for our life. There is something He wants to accomplish in and through us, and He is faithful, and if we simply surrender and follow, we just sang it, I will follow Jesus. He will fulfill that plan. Seven, God is faithful to strengthen us. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, But the Lord is faithful who will establish. The word establish means to stabilize you. When you're shaking and you feel like the earth is crumbling underneath you, He is going to stabilize you and guard you from the evil one. Eight, God is the faithful partner of our union with Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, our goal is always to be faithful, but there's not a one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, that would not admit we are often unfaithful. We are often unfaithful. James, who was known as James the Righteous, in James 3.1 even says, in many ways we all fail. And that's true. God is always faithful to us. Point nine, Christ is a faithful and a merciful high priest. How thankful we should be for this one. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that is, he had to become a member of the human race, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation refers to his sacrifice satisfying the righteous demand of God. He made that propitiation on our behalf because he is a faithful high priest. And by the way, this is why in Hebrews 4.16, <clears throat> we're challenged to come boldly to the throne of grace. 
not when we're doing well, not when everything's going right, not when we're being good little boys and girls, at the worst time. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help us win in our time of need, in the time that we're failing. How do we come? Stoop-shouldered, cringing, looking down at the ground? No, let us come boldly. Why? Because the work of salvation is done. The payment for the penalty is done. We never have to hide our face from our Heavenly Father. And by the way, many of us deny this and disobey this when we start beating ourselves down over things we've done in the past. I know that all of us are haunted by people that we've hurt, by things that we've said, or things that we've done in the past. That needs to end. It's over and done with. It's been dealt with. And we can stand erect uh, in the presence of our God and call on Him for grace and mercy. Finally, point 10, Jesus Christ is synonymous with faithfulness. We're going to see this in Revelation 19, 11. John says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. That's his name. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. So it's very important for us, again, going back to the works and the ways. Don't just see what God does. Strive to understand through his word, through prayer, to understand why is he doing what he's doing. How does this align with his plan and his purpose for me? How does this align with his character? What does this tell me about his plans going forward? If we ask those questions and we pray for understanding. James tells us in James 1.5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and does not rebuke us, and it will be given. We can pray for wisdom, insight, and understanding into the situations we find ourselves in, and James promises that God will give us the wisdom to not only see his works, but to understand his ways. And that brings us to chapter 16, and guess what? Our time is over. We didn't make it, but we made it through Revelation 15, and I think the faithfulness of God is a high point for us to stop on. I think it's a good place for us to end and just ponder. I would encourage you to read over those again and really implement them in your thinking, in your prayers, and even in our dealings with others. You know, sometimes we fail to realize that one of God's fundamental plans for us is for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. As a matter of fact, I would say that that is the summary statement of his plan for us. For us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And you know what? The more we understand God's ways, I'll even be so bold as to say this. Christians who study their Bible and see God's works can be very harsh and unbending. They can be very critical. Uh, they can be very, <laughs> I mentioned a few minutes ago, things that we look back on and regret. I wish earlier on in my ministry 
I had not been so dogmatic. You know, we've even talked about this recently in our church. There are areas where I disagree with our pastor on passages of Scripture, on points of doctrine, or on understanding a certain verse. People who only understand God's works take that as a reason to rebel. We've just recently had some people that decide we're walking out, we're not going to be a part of this church because we differ here. Well, if you look for the church where everybody agrees with you on every point, you're going to have a hard time finding a church. You're going to be alone. Not only that, you become dogmatic, dictatorial, uh, everything becomes a controversy. And you know what? We all grow at different rates. We all grow in different stages. And some will excel in one area and some will excel in another. And both of them excelling in two separate areas may find a point in the middle they disagree on. You know, there are certain teachers that I have very, very strong disagreements with, popular people in this country. But I know one thing, they're still my brother. And the unity that is most important is not doctrinal unity, it is the unity of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. We have one Lord, we have one faith, we have one baptism, we have one Spirit. We have all of these things that unite us because of what God has done. So don't just look at God's works and say, well, I'm going to be like that and I'm going to you know, drop the hammer on these people or whatever. Understand His ways. And when we understand His ways, I'll tell you what it does for us, as we become more conformed to the image of Christ, isn't it interesting? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, were always debating and arguing with Him. And His responses to them up to the very end, when He gets to Matthew 23, the opportunity is over, and that's when He drops the hammer and He pronounces seven woes on the nation. But in every controversy up to that point, how mild, how gracious, how attempting to win them and attempting to overcome their blindness and hard-heartedness, and He's constantly appealing to them to surrender themselves in faith and humility. The more we become like Him, the more that's the kind of people that we're going to be. Doesn't mean that we compromise with false doctrine. Doesn't mean that we let people run over us. But we not only stand on the declaration of God's Word, we also stand on the character of Christ, which we're trying to assimilate and express to the world. All right. We are done for the evening. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for your spirit that helps us to bridge that gap between just looking at what God does, looking at his works, and understanding why he does it, understanding his ways. Help us, Father, to absorb, to assimilate, and ultimately to reflect your character and the character of your Son as we deal with those in our own sphere of influence in our own personal mission field. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.